This episode is brought to you by my friends Quinn and Samantha Bible of Salt and Strings Butchery in Southern Illinois. Order your custom beef today by visiting saltandstrings.com or check the link in the show notes. When you're lost in the wild and you're scared as a child and death looks you bang in the eye, and you're sore as a boil, it's according to Hoyle, to cock your revolver and die. But the coat of the man says, fight all you can, and self-dissolution is barred. In hunger and woe, oh, it's easy to blow. It's the hell served for breakfast that's hard. You're sick of the game, well, now that's a shame. You're young and you're brave and you're bright. You've had a raw deal, I know, but don't squeal. Buck up, do your damnedest, and fight. It's the plugging away that will win you the day. So don't be a piker, old pard. Just draw on your grit. It's so easy to quit. It's the keeping your chin up that's hard. It's easy to cry that you're beaten and die. It's easy to crawfish and crawl. But to fight and fight on when hope's out of sight, why, that's the best game of them all. And though you come out of each grueling bout, all broken and beaten and scarred, just have one more try. It's dead easy to die. It's the keeping on living that's hard. The Quitter a poem by Robert Service. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn. And today we get to talk to a very special guest, a friend of mine, Joseph Von Benedict. Joseph is a gun writer, he's an avid hunter. And he has formerly worked as editor at Shooting Times Magazine, which is where I met him when we were both in Illinois. I was working for Peterson's Hunting Magazine at the time. And Joseph is also currently the host of the Backcountry Hunting Podcast. He has some of the most amazing adventures under his belt. He's well-read, and as such, he's just an interesting guy and one of my good friends. I've had the privilege of sharing several hunting camps with Joseph over the years, including Audad in Texas. And in the process, I've gleaned quite a bit from his unparalleled knowledge of everything from bow hunting, uh, Texas whitetail, calling elk in the West, bush plains in Alaska, all the way to the intricacies of rifle cartridges and elephant hunting in Africa. So if you like Hemingway, if you like Teddy Roosevelt and you like talking about hunting adventures, Joseph is your guy. Definitely would recommend checking out his material at the Backcountry Hunting Podcast. You can follow along on Instagram, either on Joseph's account, or we'll provide links for the Backcountry Hunting Podcast. And always great photos and great content from Joseph. You can also follow his writings at the Guns and Ammo titles, including Shooting Times, uh, Rifle Shooter, and a couple other places. Joseph is pretty prolific, so he's got a lot of writing out in the industry. He stays very active. And again, I always enjoy his articles. In this episode, we're going to talk to Joseph about his love for hunting the West, experiences like Dangerous Game. He's had the opportunity to hunt hippo and water buffalo and some other things uh, across the world. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to also talk about some of his favorite literature, including Robert Service. We read, I read one of the poems to open this episode. And we're going to be talking about why the backcountry is so useful for character development 
as a man. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy this episode and conversation with Mr. Joseph Von Benedict. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Eric Kahn, joined today by my friend, Joseph Von Benedict. Joseph, how are you doing? I'm well. Thanks, Eric. It's fun to be back. Joseph, it's uh, it's been interesting as I've followed your career. One of the things I've said, uh, we met uh, years ago in Illinois working at uh, Gun Magazines. And I said, Joseph always seems like he's a character out of an Ernest Hemingway novel. It seems like you've from probably from the womb been hunting. You probably came out of the womb. You killed a buffalo. But you've had what we call an illustrious career or infamous, depending on how you look at it. So I just want to ask you, how did you get into gun riding, hunting? Did it start as a young man? Was it from the womb? You know, that's a many faceted question with many uh, different facets and ways to answer it. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I've got hunting in my DNA. My uh, ancestors on my mom's side are from Montana and, and way back they came over on the third ship after the Mayflower. So they've been wow. Americans and independent adventurers for a long, long time. On my dad's side, on the other hand, he's from Austria and he immigrated in the 60s. So I've got, you know, fresh blood from the continent from, you know, flowing in my veins as well. His grandfather bears a scar, a deep scar up the calf of his leg from hunting wild boar with a single shot where his single shot wasn't enough and he ended up tangling with that bear with a big knife to finish it off and and (laughs) took a slash to the to the leg from that boar's tusk so i guess it's in my dna a little bit growing up I, i was located in a very remote area and we didn't really get TV worth speaking of. So we didn't even have one. My dad had a a library of about 7,000 volumes and I grew up reading a ton. My mom tells me that as a kid and even into my teens, I tried to turn every homework assignment into a writing assignment. It was just kind of the way my (laughs) brain was wired. So I started doing uh, pseudo gunsmithing, which led to some real gunsmithing for about four years early on. I worked as a part-time saddle maker for four years. I guided in Montana and Southern Utah for nine years. I shot competitively from the time I was 14 until, well, even currently, I still dabble in it when I get a chance, but I won a very small, obscure national championship in 1996, and I have a couple of state championships in various disciplines. So everything in my life was kind of geared towards farms and hunting. And since my brain wanted to write about everything, it just kind of started happening. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. In college, I started submitting some hunting pieces and, and published pretty regularly. And one thing led to another, but I've got to say in the final analysis, it's, it's a little bit of hard work and a whole lot of blessings doors open at the right time. And I was able to get a foot into the industry when I was still young and and basically worked as a full-time in-house editor for six years. That's where you and I met. Yeah. Two two years in Los Angeles. I was swore there were two places I'd never lived when I was a kid. <laughs> that was LA and New York. And of course, when the job <laughs> offer came, it was in Los Angeles. And 
my wife and I talked about it. We'd been married about a year and there was no hesitation. It was such a blessed opportunity mm. and window into that realm that I wanted to work in. And so I put in my time there, did my time, as I like to think of it, four years in Illinois after LA and then went to writing full time and living back in the Rocky Mountain West here where I grew up. Yeah, it's really interesting, Joseph. I remember uh, I was actually in seminary. I had gone to journalism school and I remember looking on, it was like journalismjobs.com. And I was looking through and I saw Peterson's hunting and I thought, wow, that seems interesting. And I immediately thought like my childhood, I grew up reading field and stream, hunting magazines, outdoors, you know, were just my passion. And so I, I'm reading about all this stuff and I, I see this job and I'm thinking, well, you know, what are the chances of that? So I apply for the job. I get called in, of course. And uh, we were talking to, I was talking to Mike Scobie and he said to me, he said, here's the deal. He goes, you've got to be willing to travel and to hunt. And I, I remember thinking this can't actually be true. Oh, like darn. they're going to pay for you to go on hunts <laughs> and, and you have to do this. So I wonder when you were looking into it, how did you find the job? Was it something you just applied for? Was it something that you had thought you would ever do uh, is be a gun writer in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I studied creative writing and journalism at mm. the university at three different universities. I bounced around a lot, took a lot longer to finish than I should have because I was too busy guiding in the fall. In fact, that's yep. the way for years that I made enough money to attend a winter semester and a spring or summer term. Anyway, so I always wanted to to be a writer and started publishing through college and, and was basically trying to make it as a freelancer when an old gun writer acquaintance, Claire Reese, who has passed away now, yeah. referred me to um, Peterson Publishing out in uh, Los Angeles. And an editor named Jerry Lee, Prince of a Man, who's also passed yes. away now. And I worked Scott, with Jerry at uh, Gun Digest. Yeah. And Scott Rupp was the editor mm -hmm. at the time of Guns and Ammo. The two of them hired me on and the rest is history. Wow. It's incredible. So Joseph, how long at this point have you been in the industry? Mm. Full time, about 15 years. Okay. Plus my part-time freelance work for several years before that. Okay. So quite a few years, you've been on a number of hunts. I, I was just looking through your feed again and I was thinking, man, Joseph has killed some cool animals. You've got Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep on there. You've got some just amazing hunts. As you look back on it, are there any that stand out in your mind as, you know, sometimes it's because we have hunts that are like really difficult. Uh, I was thinking of one that uh, I know you and our friend Neil dragging deer through grizzly country has got to be somewhere up there. But uh, how do you, when you reflect back on it, are there any that stand out in your mind? Oh, yeah. So many. I mean, there are, there are simple deer and elk hunts right here in the West that stand out in my yeah. mind as, as very special experiences. But generally the ones that just knock your socks off with, you know, the incredible richness of the experience, typically there's something you're not used to. And just for that reason, right? It's, it's new and exciting. Probably the most adventure-filled hunts I've ever done have been on Kodiak Island. Uh, mm. For deer, just for Sitka blacktail deer, but you're you're hunting deer, multiple deer tags in your pocket. You can shoot red fox and fish when you're out on the boat. I always stay on a boat because I like to be warm at night and eat hot food. And <laughs> and when you stay there 
in a tent, you always risk those 70 and 80 mile an hour winds and, oh, and wow. you're just living in mud for a week or 10 days. It's nice to go back to a boat and regenerate. And then you can hunt really hard during the daytime as the risk is less. You can get wet. You can get exhausted and not risk being in trouble that night as you try and get to sleep and so forth. But anyway, so Kodiak Island is incredible. Even though you're not going there, you know, I've never gone there to shoot a, a Kodiak bear. I'd love to, but those opportunities are few and far between, right? And you're not hunting elephant or Cape buffalo or something, but you're among dangerous game and you're <laughs> in some extraordinary terrain so those yeah the the story you mentioned with neil emery and i um we made a, a rash decision which i'd do again in a heartbeat <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we shot two sitka blacktail bucks high up on the side of the island with dark coming on and we knew better but we well we got caught up in the moment and we ended up dragging those deer out we cut one up and put it on our packs and then we were too tired by that point actually to think straight we should have done the same with the other but dark was coming and we could see the beach we thought you know it's only like a mile and a quarter away if we hustle we can get there faster than we can cut this thing up and put it in our packs not true we, um, <laughs> true and by then we we were stubborn enough we got committed and we didn't want to give up so we just kept dragging it we got into some alder swamps where We'd take our packs ahead of us about 50 feet. We'd come back and took two of us to drag those deer through those big <laughs> hummock swamps and under the alders. Oh, man. We were literally crawling and dragging, and it was pitch dark. We did this for like three hours. Oh, and, man. you know, there's wind and rain sometimes blowing sideways and certainly bears around. We'd seen multiple bears already around us that day. Just yeah. a bad situation and some bad decisions that got us there. But, <laughs> hey, we made it. And now that memory is just cherished, you know. Oh, that's fantastic. What, uh, so you, were you guys just hunting deer on that trip? We were, yes. Okay. Well, Do you remember? Sea ducks, foxes as well. But for big game, yeah, deer. Do you remember which rifles and cartridges you brought? Sure. So Neil was hunting with the then new 300 PRC and a rifle built by GA Precision shooting 212 oh, yeah. grain Hornady ELDX bullets. I was hunting with the Winchester Model 70 that had been highly customized by Lex Webernick of Rifles Inc. in Texas. Interesting. Yep, 375 H&H. And I was shooting 250 grain Hornady GMX bullets. Uh, we wanted one that uh, could reach way out if we had to, so Neil had his, and we wanted one that would give us a legitimate chance of debating with a uh, Henri Bear. So I had my three seventy five. That's great. Did you get to? Did you end up shooting deer one with each, or uh, we both shot two deer. I, oh, I just, okay. I just used the three seventy five, but I was there when Neil shot both of his. So we both oh, that's got awesome. to observe the other. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting uh, when, when you think about some of those experiences, you know, uh, where we make decisions, we have to live with the consequences. I've often said on my show, this is a lot of the things that is, it's just good for men to experience um, those sorts of things. You know, you find out kind of, you know, like Teddy Roosevelt would say, you kind of find out your grit, you know, do you have any, are you, what are you going to do uh, when in some of these situations, by the way, can be life and death. A lot of them don't turn out that way, but um, definitely makes you. Uh, come into a, a situation where you're being tested. Um, as you look at it now, like you, you've got, you know, your son's hunting with you, you've got your kids hunting. 
Did you ever look at that and say, man, these are some experiences that I want to give my kids, especially my boys, like I, and girls for different reasons, but boys, like you look at our culture and you think, you know, it's hard to sometimes get those experiences. Uh, but I wonder if you, if you think, wow, this is a, a big part for men to experience something at least like this. Absolutely. There's a character that you find within yourself and then build that I've never found any other way. Mm. And, you know, there are some wonderful hunts in South America, Argentina for birds and some big game and, and across Africa for multitude of species there. And even dangerous game, Cape Buffalo. I've, I've hunted hippo in Africa. That was on the Okavango River. That's one of the coolest experiences mm. of my life. But it still didn't require the the deep digging and scraping the last grit out of the bottom of your barrel just to continue like yeah. some experiences, uh, usually DIY and usually in the far north because that's where you get the cold, the storms, and the isolation. Uh, and I absolutely want my sons and my daughters, if they want to do it, to go through that because of the character that I feel like it builds Sometimes you find out things about yourself that you're glad you discovered and you never want to touch that again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading um, one of the stories I've read to my boys that they love is Ernest Shackleton and just these men who went through such harrowing things. And, you know, we'll experience a small degree of it. We were hunting uh, this late season, uh, second season, but late, and it had snowed during uh, mule deer in Colorado. Uh, up near Gunnison. And it was just interesting because, you know, we're outside, we're in this blinding snowstorm and it's like, you know, zero degrees. My beard's frozen to my face. The boys are freezing. And um, I said to my youngest, I was like, well, I mean, we can head back to the truck or we can, somebody had said they saw like a 200 inch mule deer down this, this draw. And uh, my youngest, he goes, well, I guess there's only one way to become a hard man. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, that's right. That's why we're here. We're for the experience. Um, one of the things you mentioned, Joseph, uh, in past conversations, I think it was a pastor of yours or that you had known about. Okay. So he, it was like he drove himself many, many miles. I think he, I don't remember if he'd like fallen off a horse oh, yeah. or well, gotten a bad predicament. We were talking about hard men on one of our hunting trips. I think we we're in Texas and you told yeah. me the story. Would you like to hear it again? I would. <laughs> okay, so I grew up in a remote area in South uh, Utah. And when I say remote, it's truly remote, way more than most folks would think. We had 90 residents in our town. We were 100 miles from the nearest stoplight or supermarket. <laughs> and the old rancher that I worked for starting when I was 13 and running through about 18 years of age, was named Ivan Lyman. His ancestor, Amasa Lyman, was uh, an apostle in the LDS church and settled that area in 1883 or 86, something like that, long time ago. Wow. And that was Ivan's grandfather. So he had ties all the way back, right? And he had a grandson that was my age, and we used to ride together quite a bit. And um, Ivan was getting old, but he was too stubborn to admit it. <laughs> and he, he was old enough. He was approaching 80. I think he was 76, 78, somewhere in there. Yeah. His kids tried to always make sure he had 
a grandkid with him when he went out working cattle because he'd go out into the desert for four or five days at a time and just stay in a little line cabin here or there and check on his cattle. He had about 800 head of mother cows plus his bulls and the yearly calf crop and so forth. And the summer range was 100 miles from the winter range. So he was always out on one range or the other. And then spring and fall, we'd trail those cattle back and forth between those areas. Well, Ivan went out without any help this one time because the kids were in school and there were basketball tournaments coming and um, just too much going on for them to find him a companion. And I don't remember. Oh, I was I was off of college by then. So he was getting getting up there. So I wasn't around to go with him. Well, I heard later that he had found, I think it was 17 miles from his truck. He'd found a cow giving birth that had the calf stuck. And he climbed off his horse and started working with this cow and trying to pull the calf. Overexerted himself and woke up laying on his back in a patch of prickly pear cactus and it was dark. Oh, wow. He'd, he'd had a massive heart attack. Well, his horse was faithful enough that it was still standing there and he managed to crawl over to it, got a hold of a stirrup and pulled himself up the stirrup leather and somehow managed to crawl into the saddle and turn wow. the horse loose. And it took him back to the line shack they'd been staying at, which I think was probably about eight miles. I know that area. Mm. And he crawled off his horse, got into the cabin, did not dare take the saddle off his horse. I heard later that he felt guilt because he couldn't unsaddle his horse, his faithful horse, oh, wow. and give it some relief. But he knew he'd never get the saddle back on it the next morning. So this is probably like between 11 and 1 at night, right? Oh, wow. And he didn't sleep much either because he was still in a lot of pain. Yeah. At dawn, he crawled back on that horse and the horse headed out up the trail for where his truck was parked. I think that was about another nine to 10 miles. Got to the <sighs> horse, put his horse in the back of the trailer, got in his truck and managed to drive about 45 minutes to town and pulled over and passed out in front of the post office. <laughs> And somebody found him there, basically collapsed against his steering wheel, right? So they life-flighted him to Salt Lake City. And as the story goes, for days, doctors would come in, bring their residents to look at him because he was a miracle man. And then they told him straight up, this doesn't happen. The amount of damage you sustained to your heart, you shouldn't have ever even got out of that cactus patch. Let wow. alone spend a day and a half riding out and then driving to town <laughs> for help. He That's was incredible. A, he was a gnarly, tough old man, and he was very close to God, and I suspect that's what got him there. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible when you hear stories like that. And then stories, as you mentioned, like your ancestors from our, our, our Western past, the people who came here and then settled the West. There was something about it that you had to be hardy and tough and resilient and all of those things. It's interesting too, Joseph, because part of it seems like I was recently watching uh, Top Gun, the new one, and they said to him, they said, you know, fighter pilots, they're, ex they're basically extinct. We don't need your kind anymore. And uh, he said, well, that may be true, but not today. I'm still going to be doing it today. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but a little bit, I feel like I read the stories of my ancestors. I read about the settling of the West. 
I read some Wallace Stegner and it, but then I think, wow, we're almost like at the edge of past that time in history where people just think that, you know, hunters and people of our, of our sort are obsolete. Um, I wonder if you felt that way. And do you think there's a future for hunters and wild men and outdoorsmen? Man, I sure hope so. I know exactly what you mean. There's a book called Alaska's Wolfman. Mm. And if you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's about a young man. And I apologize, but I'm blanking on the name of both the, the man and the, the author that did this biography. Uh, maybe it'll come to me here in a minute. But the book is yeah, called so it's, Alaska's Wolfman. Yeah, Alaska's Wolfman by Jim Reardon. Does that yes, sound right? Yes, that's okay. it. And uh, it's about, uh, shoot. Well, it's about a young chap that headed to Alaska in his very early 20s. He was 21, I think, somewhere in there. Walked from Seward, if I'm not mistaken, to Fairbanks. Wow. Spent years as a market hunter for the people building the railway through there. Shot a lot of sheep, big uh, doll sheep, because he... Um, Apparently, that was the choice. That was the chosen preferred game mm. for, uh, for the railroad men there. Then he became a, a wolf hunter for the government and a professional trapper for 40 years. Mm. And at one point was doing so well with his, uh, with his trapping efforts that he had a permanently reserved room at the nicest hotel in Fairbanks and a standing wow. order at the local fine gun shop that every new model that came in to just put one aside for him because he was buying it. Was wow. My kind of man, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the government recognized his value and hired him in his later years for a lot of different things. At one point, he was on uh, an effort to try and curb an explosion of grizzly populations. And he went, there were times he'd shoot up to five grizzlies a day with his old 30 out of six. And he has some hairy wow. stories about that in there. I bet. He was hired to follow the 40 mile herd, caribou herd, throughout summer and into the fall on foot through some of the steepest caribou country in all of Alaska. Just an extraordinary guy. And although. Uh, they say when he when he was around people, you could almost not turn him off. He was like a faucet spilling over. He wanted to talk so much, but he oh, handled yeah. these periods of isolation with complete comfort. He'd be gone three or four months at a time and never see anybody on his own with a pack of dogs. A lot of them were part wolf. Uh, he bred them that way for the hardiness and so forth. He talks about how he had to put down a large percentage of them because they were too savage. He had to find really? the wolves that had a dog-like personality with the wolf-like resilience and instincts. So it's just such a cool book. Yeah. But anyway, that's a long way of saying I understand where you're coming from with this old breed that was extraordinarily tough. I think I still see it uh, in some of the rural people I'm among now and then. But, yeah. Uh, you wonder, is it gone? Is there a need for it? I do think that. If need arose, if we were called on to face things like that, there is a percentage of uh, humanity, of mankind, that would rise to the occasion and would fill those shoes again. They're just behind a veil of, of modern comforts currently. Yeah, it's really true. Uh, it reminds me, I was recently reading a book. It's called The Comfort Crisis. 
And it's actually, uh, I forget the guy he wrote, he wrote for like men's health, but, um, he ended up going hunting with Donnie Vincent. And so he was like a city dweller and he was like, you know, I have no interest in going hunting, blah, blah, blah. He ends up going. And, uh, he said, yeah, it really awakened my mind to like, we're sitting on the hill. I think they were caribou hunting. So they're glassing. And he said, I keep checking my phone. And Donnie's like, bro, there's no service out here. Like, you, you might as well put that thing away. The battery's going to die. It's no good out here. And um, so I, I think you're right. With some guys, um, it just hasn't been awakened. But the other interesting thing, though, is uh, I feel like it's the importance of stories. Um, when I give these things to my son and I say, let's read some Hemingway, or we're going to read about Teddy Roosevelt in Africa, or kind of the thing we've been reading. Uh, have you ever read like The Old Man and the Boy? Um, sure. Ruark. Yeah, just like stuff like that. You read it and you think it, it, what it does is creates a longing. Like I want to grab my grandson one day in a side-by-side shotgun and go quail hunting. That sounds pretty amazing. Well, you haven't uh, done kinda, that yet? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I haven't either, um, but my boys and I do that. <laughs> the, yeah, which is so much fun. I mean, uh, that's one of the other questions I want to ask you. You know, it's one thing to go on hunting adventures. Right. And you've got to do some cool ones, uh, you know, Canada, Alaska, Africa, um, lots of really cool places. But I don't know if you feel the same way. There's nothing quite like, even if it's kind of a junkie in terms of not like trophy quality, but just like a, you know, easy to get tag local with my boys. There's just something about hunting with your kids that is so special. So I wonder if you would just speak to that hunting with your kids. How, how much has that meant to you? especially as you get older. Sure. You know, there's a couple of dimensions that I didn't really expect. I suppose Mm. I should have. I should have looked ahead and seen it. But one is the fact that, well, I've I've somehow successfully, although sometimes I wonder if that was a success or not, (laughs) I've endowed all four of my kids, two boys and two girls, with a passion for hunting. Yes. And there's just one of me. (laughs) <laughs> they all want to go every time. And so I kind of chuckle and refer to myself as father guide. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have not done nearly as much hunting for myself the past two or three years. Uh, so I didn't really anticipate that, but it's okay. There's a lot of fulfillment there. The other thing that's so cool that's come back is, you know, I'm, well past the point where a little first-year four-point mule deer buck is exciting to me anymore. Oh, yeah. Meaning four-by-four, four, right? I'd much rather let that buck grow up and yes. try and get him in three years, right? But seeing the excitement mm. on a kid's face, my little girl Sophie, she turned 10 this spring and a few days later shot her first big game animals, a bear. And then oh, this cool. fall she shot... A buck shot a four-point buck, first-year four-point, and for a few minutes, it was the biggest deer any of my kids had taken. And there's <laughs> just that great. huge excitement, and I feel it too. It's come back to where you're no longer uh, so experienced that certain things just don't excite you anymore. You're interested, right? Don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm jaded yes. with it. But uh, And then 10 minutes later, my son William, who was along, I told him, and we're going to our kind of our our best spot. And I said, look, you can come along because I know there's multiple mature deer in there, but you have to serve as Sophie's assistant guide until <laughs> she's got a deer because it's her first year, right? You've shot two deer yes. and a bear and an antelope and a bunch of stuff. He's only 12. <laughs> anyway, so 
10 minutes after Sophie shot her deer, another nice buck showed up and he took that deer. They're almost identical. So oh, we had wow. the two biggest deer in the first 10 minutes of that day or 20 minutes of that day. So much excitement. Just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's amazing. I, I share the same sentiments. I remember going a couple of years ago with my dad and my son. I think it was my oldest first year hunting. So he just turned 12. Um, and my dad is, you know, he just had open heart surgery a few years prior. And it's one of the realities of life. They get older. And, you know, I told my dad, I said, I don't know how many more years we have to hunt. And so let's make sure it counts, you know. And uh, we went out. My dad shot a bull. Uh, I think it was like the second to last day of the season. It was like a 320 bull, and uh, which was great. His biggest bull. Never killed anything that big. Uh, so he shoots that one. And then another bull walks out. And my son shoots that one. And, um, you know, I've been happy for a lot of hunts. But that was one where it, was, it felt like winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, you know, I went under the trees. They, they both make their shots, really good shots. We go in the trees and these two elk are laying like eight yards apart from each other. And uh, so, yeah, it's just really interesting to be able to share that joy for others um, yeah. in a way that is, is really unique. Uh, Joseph, I want to ask you, we were talking some about species. Um, you mentioned hunting hippo. Um, I, I take it you hunted other dangerous game. I'm curious which one kind of ranks up there for you in terms of like, if I had to do that again, I would do that one again. Uh, whether it's the mystique of that particular hunt or species, um, which ones are kind of at the top of your list for dangerous game? Of the animals I have hunted that I would hunt again, all of them, but I'll, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I have a few bucket list animals that I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to hunt. You know, Alaskan brown bear, coastal brown bear is one. Uh, elephant, you know, some people are, conflicted about that but for me that is the pinnacle that's my number one bucket list animal in an area of course with good populations and uh, just to go experience that whole african classic adventure but I've that's one you haven't done yet then i have is not done that yeah okay where do you have not. to go to which country you know there's a lot of countries in africa where you can go and hunt elephants and and it's such a misunderstood species the first thing of course is to remember that africa is a country or sorry, a continent, not a country, right? There's a lot yeah. of countries on it. And yep. you can fit all of North America and Canada on the African continent. It's that big. And so you can't manage elephants by continent. You have to manage them by local populations, yep. just like any other species, whether it's wood ducks or wild turkeys or wild, you know, white-tailed deer. So Africa has areas where elephants are indeed endangered. But there are a lot more areas where they've been, hmm, I don't even know how to put this, overprotected. And they're now overpopulated yeah. by anything from 20% to 300%. And in really? those areas, this is why Botswana recently reopened. If you have three times as many elephants as the habitat can sustain, they they starve themselves out in very short order because an mm. elephant doesn't just eat a lot they destroy the the vegetation that's producing their food if there's too many of them they don't nibble off a tree and then move on if they're starving they push the tree down they tear it up with their tusk they eat the entire thing and if it's a 300 year old tree it's not going to be there next year right? right so these elephants will create a moonscape and then there's nothing to eat, and they all starve. It's a very sad thing. So they do need management. And that's you know just such a, an incredibly good opportunity 
for us to participate as stewards of the earth and try and do the right thing. And of course, those elephants provide legitimate tons, literal tons of meat for the local communities. It's It's an inspiring thing. I would like to hunt elephants in the panhandle of Namibia or... Botswana would be a, a dream place, but that's very hard to get into as far as um, just booking and logistics and the opportunities, the limited opportunities that have come up in there are very coveted now. Uh, they're kind of, anyway, um, there are other countries as well, but the one that I'm most familiar with personally is Namibia. And, and probably <laughs> for that reason, that's kind of where I think about going when I think about it. If, um, if you got the call today and they said, you know, Joseph, we want you to come, we want you to kill an elephant. What rifle are you bringing and in what caliber? You ask some excellent and challenging questions. So I have a couple. I have okay. a, uh, and I'm building one sort of that would be perfect. I've got a Winchester Model 70 action. That's their true long magnum action. And I have a 458 diameter barrel uh bart line barrel premium barrel and i want to build a 458 lot oh cool the other one that i have if i had to go right now that i'd pick up and walk with is a a ruger m77 hawkeye african and 416 uh, ruger it's a well i have two i shouldn't confess this um (laughs) it was built kind of as a trial uh on this is before guns got hard to find again, but Ruger was exploring adding that M77 Hawkeye African to its custom shop lineup and just putting a little nicer blue and a little nicer wood on it. So this was kind of an exploratory thing into that. I took it to Mozambique in 2019, shot a Cape Buffalo with it, mm. and I love the rifle. Uh, and then I have a Kimber in 416 Rem Mag that was refinished. The stock was refinished, and the, the action was color case hardened by Doug Turnbull. Oh, cool. And so that would really, that'd probably be my go-to if I had to just grab one and walk out the door in 30 minutes. Yeah. Very cool. So if you, okay, outside of, you know, the species, we know elephant. I I just want to ask you, you know, you you think about elephant, there's something about that creature. I don't know if it's the fact that there's just a mystique to it, right? I don't know if it's like that. It seems like Leviathan, like, was this one of the dinosaurs? They kind of look that way. But but I guess what is it for you that is such a draw to an elephant hunt? Mm. It's the entire surrounding experience. As I understand it, they're not actually that hard to shoot as far as a a pure uh, emotion-free technical uh, shot opportunity. You're going to get very close and you have a very large target generally. However, there's so much more to it than that. First, you try and find a mature old bull that's a good one to to harvest, if I can use that term, from the population pool. And to do that, I mean, generally, they recommend you book a 20 or 21-day safari. That tells you you're going to spend a lot of time looking. They tell you to plan on 10 to 25 miles a day on foot. (laughs) 10 to 25 miles. Generally, you're looking for a big big elephant track and then you follow it until you can take a look 
at the elephant. And there are indicators of size and age, but elephants, just wow. like people, don't always look like their feet say they should look, right? <laughs> <laughs> then once you find a bull you want to shoot, you've got to get close because those big bore dangerous game rifles are a close range shooting proposition generally. And mm -hmm. you want to be very, very sure of your shot. So by closing in, you're entering, it sounds cliche, but the danger zone voluntarily. You're getting within 15 or 20 yards of one of the most dangerous animals on the planet. And if that bull has cows around them and there are young calves, it becomes very, very dangerous indeed. And you have to be watching all around you. You have to be prepared for anything and then you have to try and wait for the right shot presentation. When that comes, you have to hold it together at the moment of truth and execute that theoretically easy shot well. Because if you don't, things are going to go astray. And then you have to clean up after yourself. <laughs> of course, this yes. is all occurring in old Africa. Just gorgeous country. Uh Beautiful, beautiful vegetation and trees and wildlife all around you. You're watching the trackers at work. You're seeing the the red glow in that, you know, what they call the the evening golden hour in Africa. It's the dust and the smoke hangs in the air. And the whole country just seems to glow with warmth. Mm. The experience is, well, I've I've been among elephants. I've hunted other species among elephants. And so I can generate a pretty accurate mental picture, I think, of what you'd be experiencing terrain and habitat-wise as you hunt them. Uh, it's just such an amazing thing. Of course, then once you've got one down, oh, who was it? I think, was it Rourke? Robert Rourke. One of those guys wrote that uh, any man, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'll get it close. Any man that doesn't cry when he shoots his first elephant is no kind of man at all. Oh, wow. The, uh, the emotion after that, intensive effort and that encounter with such a gargantuan species and then a successful closure to that excursion that colossal endeavor should be very emotional and uh, then of course you end up providing the natives with the local people with a lot of meat and oh yeah and you come home with an experience that certainly has changed you yeah, it's really interesting. I, you know, you think about continents and places to hunt. And, um, you know, a lot of times on people's bucket lists is like Alaska or Africa. Um, I've not actually hunted either one, but I've heard that they're both very just different experiences. So I wonder if you would just talk a little bit about that. Um, what's the difference between the two? Um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you even want to rank them. Um, they seem like they're both great in different ways, but what are your thoughts on those two places? Uh, they're both tremendous, and I don't think you can rank them, but you can mm. categorize them. And I'll try and be pretty succinct here because I could really get <laughs> off in the weeds with this. Africa, generally, even mm. the areas where, like with this elephant we've just described, where you may put in some intense effort throughout the day, Africa is generally something of a, a luxury experience once you get there. Mm. The professional hunters, which is their name for a guide, right, the outfitters, have it figured out. They will roll out tablecloths in the field. They'll get out crystal wine glasses for the, the wine drinkers. They have very comfortable camps. Even if it's a tent camp, you get your laundry done every day. Once an animal is down, even though it initially felt weird to me, they don't want you to jump in and help 
process that animal because the the local people that do it that's a very prestigious vocation for them and in their culture if you jump in and try and help you're inadvertently saying you're not doing a good enough job oh interesting yeah so you can offend them or hurt their feelings by doing that you just have to stand back and watch and appreciate so again kind of a luxury experience even though it can be brutal uh, when i hunted that cape buffalo in mozambique we crawled for five hours through sawgrass stubble I had gloves, thank goodness. So my hands were only mildly bleeding, but my <laughs> tough canvas pants were in tatters. My knees wow. were just big raw sores that took six weeks to to heal. And w- we waded through the swamps of the Zambezi River up above my nipples in water with crocodiles <laughs> and hippos. In it. I mean, we left before dawn and we got back way after daylight and a time of the year when days were long it was brutal it was glorious and we came back to comfortable beds and hot food and somebody else making it you know so so it's it's a wonderful experience but the hardest part really is getting there the logistics is a pain you know long flights transferring firearms through various countries and agencies and so forth it's more just a lot of red tape to get there once you're there it's marvelous (laughs) alaska on the other hand which I've spent a lot of time in is more your own man's kind of adventure. Yeah. You can get a guided hunt, but it's not going to be a luxury hunt. Even the ones like on a, a a boat off a Kodiak Island where you get good warm food and you get a bunk in the bottom of that boat where you're going to stay dry and safe. You're still processing your own meat. You're still packing it all out your glass and doing all the hunting on your own. And the weather can be, extraordinarily challenging there and if you're inland say in a brown bear hunt i've not shot one yet but i've i've been along on some i was a packer for a a biologist friend of mine years ago i mean you live in a mud hole and you crawl out of it and you glass every day for 15 days trying to find a bear without spreading your scent because those big savvy old bears the kind you want to shoot they leave the country when they smell you when we finally found a big bear on that particular hunt, we were, we were climbing the mountainside to, to try and get to him. We'd crossed a little bench. We were about 75 yards up from where the bench turned steep again, and we'd stopped to catch our wind. And, and the head guide, my, my biologist buddy uh, from here in Idaho, actually, although he spent, he spent 19 years in Alaska as a bear biologist in a previous life, he spotted a boar. It wasn't a monster, but it was a solid bear. He said, probably nine-foot bear coming up that flat. And he said, watch this. He's going to hit our scent. Watch what he does. So this bear's 80 yards from us, just ambling along, rolling along, you know, like those big ponderous bears do. And he hit our scent trail, swapped ends in a flash, and went into a steady gallop. Really? And I watched him for a mile and a half. He did not even slow down. He looked back really? a couple times early on just to check his six, right? And then he just went. And the, the guide said, that's what the big old bears do up here. So if you want to shoot one, don't spread your scent around. So, yeah, it's tedious and very hard hunting big coastal brown bear in many cases. And then once you get one, it's, you know, the the reward, of, I've always said, is... um 
proportional to the effort you've put in. Sometimes yeah. that type two fun, ooh, it gets to the point where it's not even fun. No matter what, any way you slice it, it's not fun anymore. But you, when you achieve your goal, then it's very, very fulfilling. Alternately, probably the best DIY adventure in Alaska is to do a, a caribou hunt because it's a lot less strenuous. The animal, when you get it down, isn't daunting like a moose is. Yeah. And it's quite social. Usually you can take four or five of you in a group if you want, because when the caribou come through, generally there's enough for everybody. <laughs> Although there are exceptions to that. The last one I did was undoubtedly the single hardest hunt I've ever done in my life. I really? think you and I have talked about this briefly, but I did a DIY solo drop camp hunt for caribou in 2020. Yep. And it was in really rough terrain. I got dropped off on a, a ridge line that the, the bush pilot, who's a friend of mine, wanted to try. He said, I've been watching this area. I've never put anybody else here. Do you want to try it? And I, well, I'm, I'm too adventurous for my own good sometimes. So I said, <laughs> yeah, let's do that. So he landed me on this top of this ridge and he wandered around and he looked and, and he, we'd flown around a little bit. So I knew where to head for a camp. We're above Timberline. There wasn't good water in the area. And he said, all right, I'll try and come pick you up here in eight days. It was a longer trip than I actually wanted, but he was just too busy in between. I'd booked it late. And um, he kind of looked around one last time before he took off. And then he said, keep an eye on this wind. He said, I can't land or take off in a wind that's crossed the ridge like this. It has to either be still or coming down the ridge. But he said, I got to get off sooner. I'm not going to get off. So I'll see you. <laughs> so the wind had shifted and come up and it was blowing straight across this knife edge ridge. Wow. Well, for the next seven days, six or seven days, I watched that wind and it howled across that ridge. It never blew down the length of it. A couple times it died and went flat, so I knew it could have landed there. But I shot a bull the end of the second day, uh, packed him all through the third day, was on my own, and I knew weather was coming in. I wanted to get it done. Weather came in toward evening, and I got soaked and really pretty cold, but most of all, I got exhausted. I did not stop for lunch, which was a mistake. And when I got back to my camp with all my meat hauled and taken care of, and crawled into the tent, I knew I would, had pushed the edge of reason because I was borderline hypothermic. I was so tired that I, it was hard for me to think accurately. <clears throat> the, the two thoughts, I knew I wasn't hungry. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to go through the effort. But some you know, slight logical remnant of my brain kept saying, if you don't eat, you're in real trouble. And so mm. I forced myself to heat some water, make a mountain house meal, and then crawled in my sleeping bag. It took me over three hours to, to get warm. Man. And then the weather set in. And for four days, I had gale force winds above timberline, no, uh, no wood. And I'd made two other potential mistakes. Neither of them played out. But one, I had a three-season ultralight white tent, not the four-season I should have had. And I had a down sleeping bag. Oh. The worst night was the fifth night, I think. And I remember I didn't sleep much that night because the rain was hitting the side of the tent like 
hail. You know, it sounded like a heavy hail storm coming. And the wind was so heavy, it was bending those flexible poles to the point where the roof of the tent was hitting me in the face. No. And I was laying there trying to logically think through what I was going to do when those poles blew up. The tent shredded, right? And my shelter was gone. So my plan was get my sleeping bag stuffed into a dry bag just as fast as I possibly could to try and preserve the warmth it could offer if I could then get dried out somewhere else. I was then going to just whip into my rain gear and dive off the side of that ridge. About three quarters of a mile below, there's a little thicket of scrub pines. I was going to try and get to that thicket where there'd be some shelter from the wind. Maybe I could find some wood. I had a good fire starter with me, and I was going to basically try and light that ticket on fire and ride the storm out. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully, the tent held. It was a good tent. It was a big Agnes Ghost UL tent. And um, wow. Yeah, my, my down bag stayed warm. The hardest part through that was I finished my book the end of day three. And I had like <laughs> 17 movies loaded on my phone. I figured I can watch those over and over again if I have to. And wouldn't you know it, my solar charger went belly up. No. And so by about, mm, well, by the morning of the fourth day, I had like 13% left on my phone, about 10 or 20% left on my inReach. And nothing left in the battery bank and my solar charger was gone. So I turned on the phone every night to message my wife and the pilot to let them know I'm alive. That's Man. it. Nothing to read, nothing to do. I had a pen and I had the regs and I wrote <laughs> stuff all over the regs. I mean, oh, man. Bad poetry, uh, you know, <laughs> thoughts about this or that. It was a, it was a gnarly experience and i learned there are things that there are times you just are done with being with yourself <laughs> oh yeah for a while it's healthy and you find these qualities deep in your soul and then you're like okay i found them now i want to talk to somebody <laughs> about them <laughs> yeah i found it i'm over this it, it brings up a really good question because i think um it, it may seem like a lot of fun i've talked to guys who haven't done it i i've done similar things uh, not Alaska, but in the West. And you think, okay, I'm going to go do a solo adventure. It's going to be uh, really cool. And um, it's just going to be like this uh, cathartic, soul-stirring experience. And um, I don't know how to describe it, but there's something about the biting loneliness. Um, there was a book, uh, I think it was called the Solace, the Solace of Open Spaces or something like that. And, um, she was talking about it. She said, yeah, it's, you go to Wyoming and you're in the middle of the winter and, um, it can provide a certain solace, but only when it's matched with like people and, um, you know, even, even having animals around quite honestly, like if it's a horse or a, a dog or something, but I, I wonder if, what, what do you think it is about the solitude that of all the things I've faced in the wilderness, that might be one of the things that's toughest to deal with. Why is that so hard? You know, it exposes you. It exposes mm. your weaknesses. It exposes the fact that you have needs for mm. other people, for other things. The thing I found hardest on that particular experience was the absolute lack of anything productive to accomplish. No, wow, well, I'm a yeah. pretty busy guy. I like to stay busy and I 
I'm very driven by, I'm motivated by succeeding, finding success, whether it's helping my little one shoot his first pheasant or catch their fish or her first four point buck or getting an article done or taking, you know, a cool odd photograph in the snow, whatever the case is, accomplishments occupy my mind in a healthy way. And I think most of us are like that. And particularly today, even if we're not driven by motivation for accomplishment, we're still uh, addicted to some brain activity that's spurred. Maybe it's not brain activity. Maybe it's pure entertainment, but spurred by the fast-paced gadgets we have in our lives, including smartphones. Those are probably the worst. And so it's very hard to just be still. There's a a wonderful uh, spiritual song called Be Still. Mm. And there's a, I forget the name of the singer. My wife studied opera briefly in a past life, and this is one of her favorite songs. Uh, you might look it up. It's just called Be Still and Know That He Is God. And mm. it's it talks about finding that moment of peace where you can connect with uh, your Savior, Redeemer, your Creator. But in the backcountry like that, you know, I've I've done a lot of solo hunting, and I love it, particularly on a day-to-day basis. I love leaving camp before dawn on my own and coming back after dark on my own yeah. and then sharing stories with pals around the campfire. Yes. Right? Yes. So that's kind of my favorite way to do it. Another great thing for folks that are thinking, considering doing a pure solo hunt like this or an adventure, if you've never done it before, my number one recommendation would be make sure that you go in a manner that gives you uh, control over when you come out. When you've accomplished your mm. goals, whatever those are, whether it's harvesting a big elk, packing them out all by yourself, and then coming back to town with them in the back of your truck, great. Whether it's spending three days hunting with a stick bow and wood arrows you made yourself, knowing you're probably not going to succeed, but you're going to go and try and then come back. The only thing is it's very easy to give up when you have an easy out. But if you go in with horses, you go in on foot, you even go in across a lake with a canoe or probably the most you know, challenging one would be to do a drop camp float out hunt. Mm-hmm. You still have it at your discretion to leave when you want. And so you have to set goals and make sure you, you complete those before you say, I'm cold, freeze-dried food tastes bad, I'm done, you know. You'll, you'll be upset with yourself after the fact if you do that. But locking yourself in with a true drop camp hunt where you cannot come out till the pilot can come get you, whether that's on your scheduled day or later because of weather, that can be very mentally challenging. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, and I know we've done that before, even in Idaho, uh, being dropped somewhere. And I've often thought that it's like, we're like 60 something miles from a trailhead and maybe you finish your hunt, maybe you're successful, you, maybe you have two days. We've done it even with friends, but it's like, it, it really is a mental challenge uh, to, to make it through that experience. It's interesting, Joseph, something you mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, growing up, that uh, was it your dad who had all the volumes of literature? Yes. Um, something that has always interested me. I have a friend who always says this. If you want to be an interesting person, you need to be an interested person. And that probably means you need to read a lot of books. Um, It's something that I've enjoyed. It's something that you and I have talked about. One of the people that I've been interested in reading, I have a couple volumes now, is Robert Service. 
So I wanted to ask you about him and just about the poetry. What, what about his writing uh, speaks to you? Why do you like it? Why do you find it interesting to read? Hmm. You know, Robert Service is my favorite poet. Now, I'm not a great poetry reader. I do read and enjoy poetry, but Service is the one that I connect with the best. And um, I think it's because he's not only, in my opinion, an extraordinary poet. Like his literary capability is honestly inspired, but he speaks my language, if that makes mm. sense. I started yeah. memorizing some of his poems when I was a kid, you know, the the cre- creation of the cremation, excuse me, of Sam McGee and uh, yes. the shooting of Dan McGrew and several of those different um, poems. In fact, what I did, my my brother and I and two pals, three pals that we used to hang out with a lot in the mountains, pack trips, hunting trips, fishing trips, whenever we could, the four or five of us would be up in the mountains together. And we each memorized a couple of services poems. And we spent a lot of cool evenings around the fire seeing who could deliver the best rendition of a Robert Service poem, right? This was before anybody had cell phones. We weren't playing stupid games on our phones or even looking at the (laughs) pictures we'd taken that day. We were eating the fish out of the coals that we'd caught that day, and we were trying to one-up each other in delivery of a great poem, right? Well, this served us in pretty good stead when sometimes we'd end up with some young ladies in camp because we could knock their socks off. They weren't used to boys <laughs> like that, right? They're not used to this wild man who knows poetry. Yeah. And so I think right from the beginning, services poems just spoke to my soul. I connected mm. with them. I appreciated the literary quality of them. And uh, they, in a way, they probably even had a formative influence in my life. Yeah, that's that's really good. And it's I, I found that, good. you know, for my boys, it's good too. But for men in general, like finding books that, as you said, speak to the soul. Last question I want to ask you, Joseph, uh, because it's new. Uh, we've got a lot of PRCs. Um, I think we can all agree that their 300 is the greatest cartridge of all time. Just kidding. But I do love it. Um, but <laughs> Which if 300? You, the 300 <laughs> PRC, Joseph. Come on now. Uh, Neil did not pay me to say that, but uh, it is one of my new favorites. Uh, I got to get your thoughts on the 7, uh, the new 7 uh, cartridge PRC. Uh, wh- what do you think of it? Have you had a chance to shoot it yet? I have. In fact, my little girl, Audrey, who had her knee injury at the time, such a stalwart. She's 14. She shot what has turned out, we believe, to be the first animal ever taken with a 7mm PRC. Really? She shot a five and a half foot wild Idaho black bear uh, wow. in, up in the wilderness country in central Idaho. And 301 yard shot just center punched it and then oh, racked man. the bolt like an old champion and hit it as it was rolling down the hill to make sure she shot the last wiggle out of it like I'd taught her. Wow. Within a That's week, impressive. Oh, I'm so proud. <laughs> Within a week, my littlest daughter, Sophie, who was 10, had also shot a bear, and my wife had shot a, a whopping big sow. We all thought it was a big boar. Old, old sow with that same wow. 7mm PRC. Then I took it to Africa. I shot a management ostrich at 475 yards running. One shot tipped it over. It was... Wow. Anyway, so... 
Yes, that was just to say that I, I've had quite a lot of experience with the cartridge by now. I was using it long before it was introduced. I got a um, actually a, a special barrel made for a Gunworks Nexus, which is their switch, oh, cool. switch barrel rifle, and I was using that before it was well before it was introduced. So the cartridge itself, I could go on and on, but I'm not going to. Let me just make a statement that's probably going to raise some eyebrows. Hands down, the best 7mm Magnum cartridge ever engineered. Really? Yes. And the reasons are fairly simple, uh, but there are some caveats. If you're shooting inside uh, 600 yards, it's not going to offer you very much that the existing, the already existing great 7mm's don't. My personal favorite 280 actually improved is great to 600 yards the uh, classic 7 rem mag is fantastic to 600 yards the 28 nozzler is actually faster in velocity of course than the 7 prc but it's a bit like i like to say it's like a muscle car equipped with nitrous it's finicky and it wears out fast and it requires constant tuning so yes. yeah. the 28 nozzler can be problematic in that way. The 7mm PRC is inside the cusp of efficiency. It's very easy to handle for accuracy. And it's here's the most important thing. It's optimally set up for use with our modern high BC long range bullets. Yes. So you're going to get that performance past 600 yards plus the longevity, the lifespan that gives you uh a cartridge you can spend a lot of years hunting with. Uh, that's the drawback of the 28 nozzle. You burn them out fast and they're finicky. There's so much going on with all the barrel oscillation, the action flex and all that, that they're finicky. So that's my short answer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. The other thing I noticed too is like the uh, 28 nozzler ammunition. Uh, generally the PRC ammunition, even the 300 PRC, it hasn't been, I mean, it, it, none of it's cheap. But if you're looking on the shelf, um, a lot of the the nozzler type cartridges are, you know, hundred dollars plus a box, and yeah. you know, for a lot of guys, it's like, well, that hurts uh, with inflation and everything else. The seven mm PRC will be available more like the standard, you know, Hornady yeah. uh, Precision Hunter line. It's also this is a big deal. This is what you don't get with a seven rem mag. It's a turnkey solution. That's a phrase taught to me by my friends at uh, Hornady, but it absolutely <laughs> applies. It's set up yeah. to use those high BC bullets in a fast twist barrel, in factory ammo, in factory guns. You don't have to have a custom rifle built with a fast twist barrel and a lengthened magazine box and then tune carefully tune hand loads without really relevant data because you're not seeding bullets to the, you know, the SAMI spec overall case length. So you're dealing with a whole lot more to turn a seven rem mag into a competitive contender with a seven PRC. What do you like uh, for rifles uh, in terms of the seven PRC? Mm. You know, there are apparently over 20 that are on board that have committed to building it. I think there's a lot. There's going to be a lot of availability. Uh, Gunworks, certainly. I would go with a climber. This is if you've got the money, right? This, this is an expensive rifle. It's like the Rolls Royce of fine hunting rifles. But I look at it like this. It's a single connecting element between you and your game, right? The bullet is truly that, but the rifle is the launching pad for the bullet. People spend the money on a four-wheeler without batting an eye, and they ride around on it a lot. That rifle is going to live with you. It's going to be on your back, in your pack, in your hands the entire season, and then it will be with you at the moment of truth. 
The four-wheeler won't, right? The four-wheeler in 20 years can be worn out, piece of rust, the rifle you can hand down to your kids. So an expensive rifle is an investment worth making. I like Gunworks, Proof Research, and Altera Arms for the high-end 7mm PRCs. In the mid-level, I would go with something like a Seekins Precision or a Springfield Waypoint 2020 if they bring out a long action in 7 PRC. It would be a great choice. You're looking in that two to $3,000 range. If you're looking for something in the $1,000 to $1,500 range, I would look toward a Browning X-Bolt. I don't think they're going to be out for a year or two, but they'll be good when they come. Just look at the success they've had with the 6.5 PRC and the 300 PRC. I'd look at a Brigara in a 7 PRC. And any, you know, Tika, if Tika usually takes a while to get their rifles out, but they make very accurate rifles. And, you know, once the cartridge comes, they'll do a good job with it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Joseph, I appreciate it. Uh, as always, a pleasure catching up on the hunting stories and literature and all that. We'll encourage people to check out uh, the Backcountry Hunting Podcast, which is one of my favorite. If you're into hunting, that is definitely one that guys will have to check out. And again, sir, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it was my honor. I appreciate the invitation. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Again, special thanks to Joseph Von Benedict for joining me on this episode. Love hearing his stories. Love talking hunting cartridges. As Joseph said about Robert Service, man, it just, the conversation gets my soul stirred. Hunting seasons are over, but man, I'm ready to go back out and get after it again. My wife is probably grateful that there's some months before another hunting season opens and realistically, it's good for my own sanity as well. Definitely appreciate our Patreon supporters. Special shout out to you guys for making this content possible. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, go to the Patreon link in the show notes. You can become a supporter for as little as $5 a month. Get access to exclusive content, early access. And we're working on an Ask Me Anything episode right now for our VIP patrons. So be sure to send in your questions and we will answer those for our Patreon supporters. If you love this content, you want to see more of it, by all means, go over to Patreon and you can support the show. You can also go to ericcon.com and get a Virtus or Pietas t-shirt or coffee mug. I'm drinking for one right now and uh, I think it just makes coffee taste better. So be sure to check that out. Again, another way to support this show and finally, shout out to Barbell Logic. If you're looking to get strong, strengthen your body, deadlift, squats, bench press, and you want some online coaching, be sure to check those guys out. And check out, by the way, the past episodes. Uh, we've done two with Matt Reynolds from Barbell Logic. Matt is an interesting guy. Love talking to him and learning a ton about the physical body, about how to strengthen your body, and about barbell training. Check that out again at barbelllogic.com slash hardmen. You can sign up today and that helps support this show and Barbell Logic. Of course, it's going to help uh, you get in better shape. Again, thank you for listening to this episode. We'll catch you guys on the flip side. Until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. <laughs>